As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hello, Odd Lots listeners. It's Joe Weisenthal. I wanted to share with you a new podcast from Bloomberg called What Goes Up. Each week, hosts Sarah Ponsek and Mike Regan speak with expert guests about the main themes influencing global markets. They explore everything from stocks to bonds to currencies and commodities. If you're curious about the latest buzz on Wall Street, this show is for you. We're going to play you the latest episode of What Goes Up. And if you like what you hear and want to hear more, this show is out now and you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a markets reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I am Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, from long shot to base case, Wall Street is growing increasingly pessimistic that a trade deal might not be reached over the summer months. And even as the Fed preaches patience, bond yields continue to fall, with the 10-year Treasury yield reaching the lowest level since 2017. And of course, Sarah, we will finish the show with the ever popular, the craziest thing I ever saw in markets this week, at least this week. I hope you have a good one. Do you have a good crazy thing? I will have a good one by the end of the podcast. All right. I've got a good one. No pressure on our guests, you always but have mine's, good one. mine's pretty good. I'm just throwing it out there. Oh, that's it. I'm not trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of our guests there. Emily Barrett, you better have something good. Uh Emily is our correspondent straight fresh from the trade wars covering the bonds and FX markets. That's exactly how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> and also joining us on the show, Gina Martin-Adams, the uh, chief equity strategist here at Bloomberg. Gina spent many years as a strategist at Wells Fargo, Wachovia Corp before that. But Sarah, I was looking at Gina's bio, something I did not know about her. She's a gator. Really? University of Florida. Yes. You know that I am from South Florida as well. I'm I, a gator by I birth. Know I know. That's yeah. two Florida women on the Look show. I, I don't know. Florida women don't make the news quite as entertainingly <laughs> as the as Florida, Florida men. men. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but maybe yeah. we can change that this week. I don't, <laughs> don't underestimate us. <laughs> but this week, we've been talking about U.S.-China trade for a while now. But it seems like we got a bit of a step up. We think about what's changed, for one being the Huawei blacklist. We've also heard talks that other surveillance companies out of China could be blacklisted as well. And we even have a fight song out of China. And for Gators, I went to school at Michigan. You know a good fight song can really rile people up. Gina, from your perspective, is this becoming something that traders, investors can really no longer ignore? 
Yeah, I don't necessarily think they have ignored it, but it did take a new step this week, and it took a step into a tech war as opposed to just a trade war. I think when you look back over the course of the last year, that's been the most dangerous aspect of the U.S.-China relationship shift. It's not the tariffs. The tariffs are a teeny tiny portion of GDP growth. They're a teeny tiny portion of earnings growth. You know, you've run through the quantification of tariffs and you find out real quick how small they are, which is why stocks could sort of bounce around in the 1% to 3% decline range up until this week. And we did see an elevated level of volatility This week, we've seen a lot more angst evident in broad market classes with the rise in gold as a good example this week. Small caps really getting creamed this week. So much bigger risk off sentiment this week than last week. And I think the reason for that is this week it became about tech, not about trade. Gina, I'm curious in uh, your career, have you ever thought about politics as much as, as we have to these days? It, it seems like a very uncomfortable thing for nah, yeah. a numbers-oriented, <laughs> fundamental, uh, yeah. technical analyst to, to worry about. Yeah, it's. Uh, I have thought about politics a lot over the course of the last several years. I mean, I can distinctly remember 2016 as a year in which it was all, you know, the popular sentiment on Wall Street was, if Hillary Clinton wins, stocks should do fine. If trade, if if Trump wins, stocks are going to get pummeled, right, right? right? And the opposite, the exact opposite thing occurred right after the Trump election in 2017. Then the the thing was stocks just climbed this wall of worry because everyone was really concerned about Trump. I think throughout my career, I've always had to focus on policy in general, but more so on monetary policy than on fiscal policy, and certainly never on trade policy. Right. And, you know, even the smartest trade policy m- movements in the Bush administration weren't so meaningful for the broad market. So it's definitely a very different kind of policy that we, we are now focused on, though policy is always important. It's just usually monetary rather than, than trade or fiscal that really matters. Right. And you mentioned how, and I think everyone's doing this now, you take the X percent tariffs on X dollar value of goods and you get why you get a certain effect on earnings on revenue but i wonder is there more to it than that are there sort of unquantifiable risks uh to confidence to sentiment that sort of thing and and how you know how do you wrap your head around that as the type of strategist you are who is you know deep into the numbers yeah it's it's frankly very very difficult because behavioral analysis is a huge part of markets and i think the only way to really analyze the potential impact of this is through price itself you know, we can all speculate as to what it means for GDP growth globally. We can all speculate as to how much this is either inflationary or deflationary. But the hard truth is nobody knows. We could try to quantify it. We could try to pretend we know more than anybody else. But the reality is the market itself, which is an aggregate of millions and millions of people's opinions, is probably smarter than any of us in this room, right? Yeah, I, I've made a whole career out of pretending I know more than <laughs> yeah, I know, <laughs> yeah, the, you and me both. Fake it till you make it. Uh, and so I watch price very, very carefully. And what price tells me right now is... Okay, so far the risks of this are somewhat contained. A 5% correction in stocks is nothing. These things come around every nine months or so on average. But if we start to work our way toward 10%, we break that 10% line, it becomes very clear that the market's impression of this is something much worse. Right now, something I've been hearing as to why markets have been decently resilient, we're not too far off the highs, like you said, is that you look at the economic data, you look at the fundamentals, and they're still largely strong. However, this past week, we did see some weaker PMI numbers in the U.S., not yet contracting, but pretty close on the cusp. What could it take to really push us off the edge. Yeah. So, 
historically, you're not pushed off the edge until manufacturing PMI in the U.S. is all the way down at 43. We got away. I think the market will absolutely hesitate, uh, reach a, p- a point of very big insecurity if ISM falls below 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the big keys that we watch. Initial claims is another one incredibly important to the direction of equities long term. Initial claims, if initial claims start rising, and especially if they rise more than 50,000, start to move towards 70,000 in a rise, you're pretty much assured that you're falling into recession. Uh, the other thing to watch is, of course, the bond markets. We you know, still haven't had that inversion of the twos, tens, at least last I checked. And that's a big key trigger for the equity market sentiment as well. So there are a lot of different things that I think you want to watch uh, for the economic data. You know, Frankly, consumer confidence, which is still near a 15-year high, is still pretty supportive. So you need to see a big deterioration in consumer confidence as well. well that's a good segue into our next guest on the Bonds team, uh, Emily. Uh, you had a story out um, this week talking about the market expectations for inflation. I just want to read one line because I think it's it's pretty important. Uh, you write that since consumer price gains have been lagging the Fed's 2% target for much of the past decade, it's little wonder that inflation isn't a hot topic in the market yet. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but it, it may be warming up with the Fed actively debating how it can meet its inflation goals, uh, including a June 4th to 5th conference to discuss different approaches. I feel like the trade tensions are uh, – causing a lot of confusion about what we should expect for inflation. Obviously, the market is pricing in lower inflation going forward. Um, but a lot of people are talking about the the pure inflationary effects of the tariffs on the consumer. Uh, what is sort of the consensus out there or what's the smartest take you've heard about what we should expect in, as far as inflation uh, in the trade trade war? Right. Yeah. I mean, this is the interesting thing. I think people try and disaggregate what's the shorter term issue in terms of the inflation impact. Uh, And directly, I've seen some Goldman Sachs Sachs analysis saying, you know, this is the boost that we might see to CPI in in sort of the medium term. But people are really focusing on that longer term potential drag on growth. And as they're looking to that, they're sort of seeing if growth starts to slow, then you have more and more headwinds to that inflationary impulse. And so really, that's where we're seeing this decline in break-evens, which is the inflation premium that are built into treasuries. Um, We're seeing that just coming down and down. And that's despite the fact that, you know, we've had tariffs put on there, other things, there's been oil price gains sort of uh, in the year to date, hasn't been reflected at all. And normally, break-evens would follow that pretty closely. So we're seeing this kind of really sort of counterintuitive move in inflation markets. And it's because, you know, people talked for ages about secular stagnation. You got bored of hearing about this. But it seems that the forces that are pressuring inflation lower, and it's not just in the US, it's globally, and so much stronger elsewhere, people would argue, um, really are top of mind for most investors. And so that's going to be hard to fight. And this is this is where it comes down to people's expectations for rate cuts. I mean, there's a sense in the market that the Fed, if it's going to be serious about hitting its 2% inflation target, is really going to need to take some action on rates to lower them. Um, and people have gone so far as to say a couple of people I spoke to, you know, it's not just one cut, it's probably two or three if you want to hit um, the thing that's interesting about where CPI is at the moment is relative to the Fed's target, the Fed prefers um, consumption expenditure. So they'll look at a PCE rate, which is actually 40, 30 to 40 basis points 
below where CPI is. So, um, so that's it's even worse, really, if you look at the preferred, Fed's preferred measure. I know a lot of people are looking at the Fed minutes that came out this week and calling it old news. Um, but I ran a little control fine just to see where the word transitory comes up. And transitory appeared twice as it relates to inflation, whereas the last time around we saw the word transitory once, but it was related to GDP and first quarter slower growth being transitory. What else did we possibly learn from the minutes, if it's possible to right. glean anything more from what we've heard from Fed officials? I think what people wanted to see, I mean, this must be the shortest lived transitory impact on markets right. ever, because <laughs> after, you know, when Fed, the Fed's Powell was really pushing that transitory message, you know, what's weighing on inflation is going to be very short lived. You did see a market correction that started to sell off a little. Oh, right. OK, we might come back if the Fed believes this is going to happen. But that just got crushed. And what the minutes gave us was this sense that at least among the FOMC, the, the Fed's committee, there is a broad agreement that these, or at least they're on message, that people seem to think that, yes, this could be a transitory impact. But from the people I've spoken to, they're listening at the fact, to the fact that uh, the transitory effects don't quite make up for the shortfall in inflation. They really do believe that there are stronger forces at work here. So what we learned from the minutes, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I'm not even sure that... Uh, you know, the, the trade impact wasn't factored in because obviously most right. of the trade fallout really happened after the minutes were released. Um, so the bump that we should have got, well, we've got not much more hope of getting it back really at this <laughs> point. Uh, now, Gina, if the break-evens are right and we're due for some weak inflation going forward, uh, what does that make certain sectors, certain factors look more attractive to you? H how would how would you recommend playing sort of the, the uh, low inflation environment? Well, it depends on if we are indeed in for a transitory or a longer term sort of disinflationary, deflationary trend for start. But if we assume that it's very, very short term, more than likely it pushes you into more defensive sort of sectors. And I think we've seen that over the course of the last couple of months. Our sector strategy model even pushed us into defensive sectors as early as the end of April. And that largely reflects what's happening in rates. And rates are rallying so much, indicating that this inflation pressure is somewhat nil, at least in the short run, suggesting that the downside risk to growth is still pretty evident. And at a time after stocks had already rallied tremendously in the first quarter, the valuation multiples started to shift as well on the cyclicals versus defensives call. I could tell you one sector... It absolutely suggests you want to stay away from, and I, this is manifest in price performance as well, is energy. There's one sector that is just constantly the inflation play in the equity market. It's energy and then to a lesser extent materials. As much as this last month of weakness in the equity market seems to have been about tech, the energy sector is down 400 basis points more than tech stocks. Right. I mean, it's just getting crushed. It's making new relative price lows in comparison to the S&P 500 and has been persistently for the last several years. So the equity signal is actually very deflationary, if not deflationary, then at least disinflationary and has persisted through a long period of time. At the beginning of the year, I heard the case being made a lot that we needed to see energy prices close the gap with oil prices because we had seen oil rally so much. Well, now clearly we're seeing oil prices roll over. We're seeing energy stocks roll over. Is the case for that, for energy prices to move up to oil prices and close the gap, kind of disintegrating? Yeah, you know, that gap has been existing for the last three years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could even take it all the way back to 2011 when the gap started to widen. You know, I think that the the 
terrible fate for energy stocks is, unfortunately, every time oil prices rise, it's met with a new wave of supply, which constrains profitability and constrains the inevitable and constrains the oil price from continuing to rise. And that's very well played out in energy stocks. And energy investor investors just don't want to touch the sector on that premise alone. From a sentiment perspective, you got to love energy. For a long-term sort of sentiment call, you're looking at a sector that's now less as a share of market cap of the S&P 500 than it was in 1998 when oil prices were $10 a barrel. So nobody wants to touch this stuff. But (laughs) how do you jump in in the face of clear signals from the rates market, generally sort of depressed economic signals relative to where we were at least a year ago, stock price signals that are still very, very negative. And frankly, the dynamics of oil supply and demand are different today than they were 10 years ago. So it's a tough space. And there's just not a lot to suggest that that gap necessarily needs to close because frankly, oil prices keep closing back toward energy stocks every time they try to rally. And that's just a, the, the fracking boom, I take it, just the supply glut? Yeah. I mean, if you think about sort of how things have changed over the last decade or so, go back to 2007, 2008, when oil prices were moving toward $150 and the sentiment was, we're never going to find supply again. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just not enough oil in the world. Right. And, how that's changed. Oh, yeah. Over the course of the next several years, we found out, oh, lo and behold, there is actually plenty of supply. We just needed to use new technologies to get to it. That's created this massive downtrend in oil prices really since they peaked in 2007 and then again in 2011. And the result of that is just this this persistence of supply or even the perceived persistence of supply constrains your upward potential for price growth and it's feeding through to energy stocks. Emily, to get back to the Fed minutes, it, there's this weird situation that happens where, okay, the trade war escalates uh, a couple weeks ago with President Trump's tweets, and then he follows through and raises the tariffs. Then along come the minutes, which are reflecting a meeting that occurred before right. that. Right. So yet people still seem to react to them. I mean, uh, uh, assuming this is the the last best evidence we've gotten from the Federal Reserve on their thinking, but... Uh, at some point, do people just ignore them? You've talked to a lot of investors after the minutes. Presumably, they're still reading these minutes, even though so much has changed since right. then. Or right. do they discount them to, to some degree? I think this is the weird thing. And this is the thing that always makes me just sigh and kind of want to scream sometimes when you look <laughs> at the minutes. Because it's like, this is essentially stale news, right? And particularly at this point, because it's prior to all of the trade stuff that happened. So I was actually really interested myself to see what the market was going to do to this. And it just it's funny because I don't know if people actually forget they're still they're so busy reading the Fed's runes sometimes that any signal like the sort of smoke signal is, is going to tell them what to do. But I think the interesting thing that most people are trying to parse out of that document is how much consensus is there? How firmly held a belief is this in the Fed and how difficult might it be to dislodge? Like how much are they looking at the data really and what, what is their interpretation of that data? So people are – the thing that I find most amusing is looking at how people understand the word few versus several versus a number of mm-hmm. versus some, you know, as a measure of how many people on the committee actually hold a certain view. So that's, that's one of the things. You talk about stale news. If you looked at the staff economic projections in the minutes, they actually talked about how trade – 
the U.S. and China coming together was positive. It was optimistic. So how that's changed since the minutes were actually written. I want to ask you, though, how far off does it seem like the bond market is from where the Fed actually stands at this point in time? This is uh, starting to feel as if that disconnect is actually widening again. I mean, we saw earlier this year there was, uh, you know, the the market was really doubling down to say even as many as, you know, sort of two hikes starting to get priced. We're getting closer to that. Now, I think that the interesting point from what the market is pricing in is there is actually now still more than one hike priced in by the end of the year, just a little more. The Fed, I think that after giving that message of transient, they're just sitting there with that for the time being. And it seems as if that that conviction among policymakers um, is really at odds with the market's movements lately. Um, but it's hard to see. I mean, as, as you, Gina, you were discussing before, you know, the data are still reasonably strong. There's, there's actually, looking at it objectively from a dispassionate viewpoint, it's hard to see whether the Fed would find a decent case to cut rates at this point. And now that they're starting up their inflation review, this is going to become a really interesting topic to follow over the next couple of months because they're really going to have to look at what other kinds of strategies they might take to try and meet their mandate. Now, uh, Gina, you have a lot of uh, letters after your name, Mm. Uh, CFA, CMT. I also have three names. (laughs) I'm just trying to extend that business card. Your business card card says uh, continued on on the other side. side. Confusion (laughs) is part of the the game here. (laughs) So I was was curious to see your technicals, uh, putting your CMT hat on, uh, chartered uh, market technician, and and looking at the technicals. Um, So walk us through uh, two things I'm curious. A, sort of what levels uh, you're looking at, but also... Is it the time uh, right now where technicals kind of take a backseat to the fact that everyone's waiting for the next headline, waiting for the next tweet? You know, are there times when you sort of uh, discount technicals to some degree and don't give them as much weight as you normally would? And and are we in a, a period like that now? I never discount technicals, Mike. <laughs> I am a technician. Uh, I think they're actually always valuable at every market stage. Uh, And they're valuable in different ways. They give you different signals. Either they're confirming or not confirming your fundamental case. That gives you a reason to go back and look at the fundamental case. Nonetheless, I think, you know, right now what the technicals are saying is near term, there's just not a lot of reason for optimism. It's still markets, you know, maybe testing the uh, early May lows, which were support levels created by resistance points that we had matched on the S&P 500 back in the October attempted advance, November attempted advance. And then during the rise earlier this year, we sort of got stuck in this 2800 to 2010 2810 level on the S&P 500. We're back there again. If we can hold these levels, fantastic. Stocks are probably in pretty good shape. But it's really questionable because you're getting breakdowns in small caps, you're getting breakdowns in semiconductors, you're getting breakdowns in transportation stocks. Just the near-term weakness is evident. Longer term, is there any evidence that the bull market is over? No. Right? I mean, even the 20% decline last year only confirmed that the bull trend is still intact because it bottomed right at major support lines uh, that have existed since 2009. Like the, uh, so, the 50-week was one of them? I use the 50-week a lot, but that really defines sort of shorter-term bull trends and bear trends. Mm-hmm. The 50-week moving average on the S&P 500 is right around 27.77, 27.76 right now. Uh, that, if we cross through the 50-week, then you're most likely going to continue to go lower and see a 15-20% correction again. 
but you have to go all the way down into the 2300s to really eliminate the long-term bull trend. So just thinking perspective-wise, you could easily have another recession with a 20% correction in stocks, and you're still in a long-term secular bull market, mm. right, right? right? Short-term, you're absolutely in another bearish condition like we were in 2018, but you've got to have a significant dismantling of trend in order to eliminate the overall bull trend that's been in place for t- now more than 10 years. How about my personal favorite shampoo, Head & Shoulders? A lot of people are yeah. talking about a Head & Shoulders. A lot of people uh, are talking ter- about the size of the neckline. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Yeah. yeah. So, are, are you a believer in that particular I way? am, but the other, the really strong fundamental, like, t- like tenet of technical analysis is you never call a pattern before it actually occurs. And that's what people are at risk of doing. Um, I think, you know, to call this a head and shoulders, you have to have a significant breakdown beneath the neckline. I haven't had that yet. Uh, to call it a triple top, you've got to have a similar breakdown. So I, you know, just I, I like to follow the rules, despite the fact that I'm from Florida or went to the <laughs> University of Florida. Uh, the rules of technical analysis say don't get hasty to call a pattern before it actually occurs. All right. Well, there's one rule in this podcast, and it's if you show up, you have to have a crazy thing, the, the craziest thing you've seen <laughs> in markets this week. So Emily's looking nervous. I don't think she, <laughs> I don't think she prepared. We can let her go last. We'll let her go last. Let her go no, last. Hang on, hang on. Ye of little faith. I actually <laughs> I tried here. I don't want to go last because then you're going to give your great ones and then I'm going to kind of limp in with go something first, really lame. <laughs> Take uh, it away. So yeah, I'll go first. Okay. This is this is a royalties thing, so it's not actually a markets thing per se, but it's about money. So it's close so enough. Tradable asset. I'll, I'll allow it. Uh, but I was a fan of the Verve back in the 90s. So there's this song, Bittersweet Symphony, if anyone knows that. I was very fond of. It has this lovely string sort of intro to it. And it turns out that uh, Richard Ashcroft, the lead singer of The Verve, lost the royalties to that song because he sampled a little too much of a Stones song to do it. And so the Stones ended up getting all the royalties to that song. It was huge. That album was huge. Um, And they just recently gave him back. So, (laughs) So they petitioned for Mick Jagger to hand back the royalties, and they, without hesitation, apparently said yes. Just out of the That di- is very interesting. Oh, well, you're welcome. Out of their good nature? Just, done. Just, <laughs> out of their, just out of their good nature? Out of it, well, I'm suspecting they may not have needed it. They, right. <laughs> I thought you were going to go Rick Astley there. I thought I was getting Rickrolled for a minute there <laughs> with, with that one. I'm trying to think of a factoid about him next time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gina Martin-Adams. Yeah, so I, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint everyone because mine is incredibly obvious, but <laughs> it just has to be noted that we had a video go viral out of China with a giant gold fist and a nationalist it's populist amazing. message that suggests like the Soviet Union is rising again, except for it's in China. I I, mean, I see that video and I'm just blown away. If you haven't uh, seen right. it, you need to go out and search the Chinese trade war fight song. It's it's just yeah. amazing. It and, really is. You know, and then you have all the just the the amp up in uh, sort of this nationalistic sort of message coming out of China it's this week it's, has been extraordinarily aggressive. Really it's just, they're not backing down. It, you it know, seems. it also tells me this is a lot about tech. This is not, and then I go back to what I said at the beginning. Everybody's focused on trade. It is not about trade. 
It's about tech. Mm -hmm. And who's going to be the global leader in technology development and advancement and dissemination around the world over the next several decades? So China is not backing down because they're taking this really seriously. Well, Sarah, we'll have to bring Yi Shi back on to sing the He can sing the song for us. (laughs) And then we'll get a translator. uh, He sang the U.S. bond markets theme song last week. So uh, (laughs) Pretty impressive. All right, Sarah, Um, what do you got? Also last week, I have to bring us an update just because last week, for those of you who didn't tune in, we talked about how Steve Mnuchin's dad um, actually bought a 90, over $90 million bunny rabbit. It was an art piece um, on the behalf of someone. And now we know that it was on behalf of 0.72's Steve Cohen. Um, oh so he is well, now... So, I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I, I can't believe we didn't guess that. Yeah, right. we should have. Oh my God. Yeah, he is now the up. owner of a beloved over $90 million silver inflatable bunny rabbit. Pretty amazing. Um, but another one that I'll bring forwards this week that I guess, too, is kind of obvious. Tesla. I mean, we have analysts coming out one after another, going as far as, as saying that the worst case scenario, we could see Tesla stock fall down to $10 a share. And we did see Tesla fall below $200 a share, which we haven't seen in quite a while. So pretty amazing, I've got to say. It is. That is a soap opera for the ages, I think. <laughs> yes. All right. I, I, I'll give you mine. Uh, now, Sarah, it was a pretty ugly day in the stock market on Thursday. You wouldn't expect to see a lot of companies uh, rising. What if I told you there was a stock that rose 99,900% on Thursday? What is Would it, you believe one tenth of a penny? Yes. It, 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 it's, it's, I, this is why I love the penny stocks. They're, uh, so Rhino International Corp, it's a Chinese company. Sounds legit, right? Designs, manufactures, installs, and services proprietary and patented wastewater treatment desulfurization equipment, and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, yes, it rose to one penny, a true penny stock, from one one-thousandth of a penny. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Um, by, my, by my math, it required about 700 bucks to do this. The funny thing is the market cap of the company yesterday was only like $268, period. Not million, wow. not a thousand. <laughs> it's a buy. Just straight That's dollars. amazing. <laughs> so... Um, Congratulations to all the shareholders of Rhino International Corp out there. Uh, I tried to find out more about the company, but when you click on their website, our web uh, security software prevented me from seeing their market cap's only 268. I think that tells you all you need to know about about this particular company. Uh, But with that said, Gina Martin Adams, Emily Barrett, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest, Gina Martin-Adams, is at Gina Martin-Adams. And Emily Barrett is at NotFatECB. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. See you next time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.